tonight as we continue in the revelation of Jesus Christ in kind of this recap series in chapter 15, and we're scheduled for 15 and 16, but we're not going to make it that far tonight. Um, at chapter 15, we come to a major intersection, a major break in the text. John begins in chapter 15, verse 1, by saying, Then I saw another sign in heaven. Another sign, specifically one different from the first. You know, especially in the Gospel of John, but also in the Revelation, one of the things that is noted about Johannian lit, well, you don't pull out that phrase very often, it makes you sound real smart, right? One of the things that's noted about Johannian literature, about the writings of John, compared to the other apostles of his day, he is a very precise timekeeper. He doesn't tell stories thematically. He tells narratives based on progression. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And he's very precise in that manner. And so when, when it comes to these kind of statements in John, it is particularly of note. And so here you see this statement, Then I saw in heaven... I saw, then I saw another sign in heaven, specifically different from the one that he had been previously describing. The previous sign encompassed chapter 12, 13, and 14. And now we're moving on to something with a hard break. And if you don't get that, then what you think you see is the harvest of the earth and the rapture in chapter 14, and then all of a sudden the narrative just continues and there's still all this stuff that has to be done and these seven bold nut judgments and Babylon the Great and all of those sorts of things and what it leads people to do knowing that the rapture comes on the day of the Lord as they go, well, then that must not be the rapture when it so clearly is. No, here in 15 we begin with another sign. We've ended the parenthetical section that runs from chapter 12 to 14, which is an overview of the war between good and evil that starts at the very beginning and runs all the way to the very end. If you would remember, in chapter 12 through 14, what we see is the big picture. And when I say the big picture, I mean the big one. I'm not talking about just since the cross or just since the resurrection, or just since Pentecost, or even just since Abraham, or just since Noah, or just since Adam. We're talking about the big picture of the war of enmity between good and evil, between the Creator and the fallen creation that has existed since evil was found in Satan's heart. In Revelation chapter 12 through 14, we see a parenthetical section to the rest of the apocalyptic narrative that covers the entire history of the war, not only its conclusion, but the whole thing growing increasingly detailed as it nears the end, beginning with the enmity between the dragon and his God and ending with the second coming of Christ at the end of chapter 14. This section alone, therefore, chapters 12 through 14, cover at this point in time a minimum of 6,000 years. And that's a grossly conservative estimate. Because this war really appears, and, and I, can't, I cannot prove this, but this war appears to have begun before what we understand as the progression of time being actually existed. 
we can't say that it's eternal because there was a day when Satan did not exist and then he did. But as far as human beings understand time, as far as this creation where we see in Genesis chapter 1 and, 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 and you know, the sun was set in the sky and it was morning and it was evening and it was you know, a day, that kind of understanding of, the, of, of the, the, the passage of time, man, this war seems to have started well before that. A minimum of 6,000 years is covered in chapter 12 to chapter 14, and it covers all the notable events of the war. It covers enmity, that is the, the hatred between the dragon and the seed of the woman. It covers the promise fulfilled through the nation of Israel, the birth of Christ, the war in heaven, Satan being cast down three and a half years into the seven-year tribulation, the warning to beware to those who are on the earth for Satan has come down in great wrath because he knows that this time, as long as it's been, has come to its end and it is short. We see, on the other hand, rejoicing in heaven when the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. But we not only see the war in heaven, also contained in this section is the war on earth. Satan's indwelling and the rise of the first beast, the Antichrist, as he receives his mortal wound and then is healed in a false resurrection. We see Satan supernaturally prevented from harming the nation of Israel, though that is his first priority, man. Cut off the vine and you'll kill every single branch that has been grafted into it. In his rage, we see he turns on the church. And the Lord gives them into his hand for three and a half years. A call for the perseverance of the saints. We see the rise of the false prophet, the second beast. A man who receives power from Satan to elicit the worship of the Antichrist on his behalf. And directly before the end, we see 144,000 Jewish witnesses martyred. Killed for the testimony and the witness that they bear for Christ. We see them standing with Him in heaven, the very hope of glory. We see three angels. The first with the eternal gospel necessary to be proclaimed to the whole world for the consummation of the age to come. As Jesus told us in Matthew 24. The second angel announces the fall of Babylon the great. The third angel announces the imminent destruction of all those who worship the beast. And finally, we see the very day of the Lord itself, the one we spoke of this morning, that that earthquake so long ago, now 2,740 some odd years ago, no, 2,780 some odd years ago, that earthquake that was just the reference for the real one that's coming, Christ Himself returns, sets His feet on the Mount of Olives, and harvests the earth twice. The first, the harvest of the grain. His saints, harvested by Christ Himself, raptured to meet Him in the air. The judgment seat of Christ, the return of His glorified saints. And then we see the harvest of the graves. The followers of the beast, this time by angels, Christ's agents, as He said they would be at the end of the age. A harvest unto wrath. Man, Revelation chapter 12 to 14 literally encompasses the entirety of created history. Man, if, you're, if you want to understand what the end of the age looks like, you've got to go back to what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and, and study Daniel. 
But once you move out of Daniel, if you want a grip on what's really going on, if you kind of want the outline, man, the first thing I would do would be study Revelation 12 to 14. It is the big picture map that everything else fits into. And we finished it. And so now we come to another vision. The expanded view of the end. And if you're going to look in detail at the end, you have to start with the beginning of the end. Then I saw in heaven another sign, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Man, what an incredible statement. I mean, here it is. This deal's been building up ever since you know John saw the sign set in heaven of the great red dragon. And here we've come to it. With this activity, with this specific set of circumstances and actions, the wrath of God Almighty, a holy God, a holy wrath, will come to its absolute Fulfillment. Revelation chapter 12 through 14 was one vision. Revelation chapter 15 through 19 is the next one. It is an unbroken narrative that describes in detail the overview of the events of Revelation chapter 14. Now, guys, you know that when they when 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 they blow the verse divisions, I always point it out. As a matter of fact, we got one coming in Amos that cuts a clause in half and has three words in it. Now, what kind of sense does that make? It's a verse that doesn't just cut a sentence in half. It cuts a clause in half and it has three words in it. Whatever. Right here, the old Frenchman got it right. Chapter 14 is exactly, if you're going to break a chapter out of that narrative, it's exactly the place to break it. What you see in 12 through 14 is this big grand overview. What you see in 15 through 19 is the expanded overview of chapter 14 alone. It's like when you click on the bubble and it goes whoop. More information. It describes in detail the events given in Revelation 14. It begins with the same scene in heaven that you see at the beginning of Revelation 14, and it includes the details of the fall of Babylon the Great that is included in 14 and ends with the second coming of Christ in detail that chapter 14 ends with. It is literally chapter 14 expanded into five chapters. Another sign. As the parenthetical section comes to a close for the first time since Revelation 12.1, we are seeing something that does not follow the narrative immediately preceding it. And what it contains is seven angels with seven plagues. It says in verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of his name standing beside the sea of glass with the harps of God in their hands and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations.' 
Who will not fear, O Lord, the glory of your name and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in purple, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Revelation chapter 15. The beginning of the end. And the end begins literally at the place of the beginning. Well, that's a mouthful to say. The end of the world begins at the place where the world began. At the throne in heaven itself. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with the harps of gods in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It parallels directly with Revelation 14, 1-5. Look at 14, 1-5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion, this is the heavenly scene here, so this is actually Zion, not its namesake in Jerusalem. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these that have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb everywhere He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Revelation chapter 15 verses 2 through 4 parallels 14, 1 through 5 just with a broader angle lens. Here in 15, we see all those who had conquered the beast and not taken his number instead of just the 144,000. Here we see them singing a song they all know instead of one exclusive to the 144,000. They stand on a sea of glass mingled with fire. The very throne of heaven itself. It's identified back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, Before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. This scene is attended by a very select group of people. Those that have conquered the beast, the image of the beast, the number of the beast, and thus have overcome all three prongs of the attack by which the Antichrist has assaulted them. And what are they doing? What are they doing? Man, they're singing. They're praising God in worship, accompanied by the very harps 
given to them by God Himself. So, we're not going to get much further, so I'll... I'm a guitar guy. Couldn't play one to save my life. Couldn't even show you a G chord, but boy, I like guitar music and I like guitar bands. And I'm every guitar guy's kind of got his own preference. I'm a Gibson guy, man. I like the sound of a Les Paul. But I can appreciate the sound that any really fine instrument will produce. And so we were watching a documentary the other night. Yes, we're those kind of old people now that watch documentaries. <laughs> we are watching a documentary last night about the Smithsonian Museum, and they were talking about one of the finest Stradivarius cellos that exists anywhere in the world still today. You know, this thing's 600 years old, and they're still trying to figure out how this one dude over in Italy 600 years ago was able to build a sound box that produces better sympathetic harmonics than the highest level of technology can construct today. And what they're figuring out is part of it is because they're 600 years old. They were good to begin with, but part of it's because they're real old and that does some stuff. But that's neither here nor there. I find quality instruments almost as fascinating as I find quality firearms. Man, I don't know what the harp sounds like that God hands you, but I'm guessing the tone quality is real good. Especially for this group, man. I mean, these are the people. The 144,000, those that conquered the beast, that didn't take his number, that, that didn't fall to his name. Man, all of these people are standing in heaven because they died for their testimony. And back at the beginning of the Revelation, it says specifically that those who die as martyrs, that those who die for their witness are going to be directly under the throne, that they're given the place that is closest to the manifest presence of God Himself. I mean, buddy, they got these are the best seats in the house. Box seats. And this is General Admission Pit, dude. This is right at the action, on the sideline. A very select group of people. Bound up in worship through praise, holding a harp that God Himself gave them. And if you look back to the book of Hebrews, being led in this praise, you know who the worship leader is here? Nothing less than Jesus Christ Himself. Now think. Now look, man, there's sometimes the Lord blesses us with some great praise in our worship, but I just want you to grab on for a moment because we don't have time to crack this nut tonight. We're out of time already. I want you to just grab on to for a moment the weight of the scene that you see here. The martyrs of Jesus Christ huddled around the throne of the eternal God who has called them according to His purpose, singing a song of which the first part is so old that right now, right now, it's 3,500 years old. And that song was the promise of God, the very gospel given to the people of Israel in the wilderness. The second half of the song is that promise fulfilled, the song of the Lamb. They sing together in whatever the 
perfect harmony of heaven must sound like, playing these harps being led in worship by none less than the Lamb Himself. Man, that is that is a scene like no other. And the crazy thing to me about it, well, it's all kind of crazy, but it is set against the backdrop of the imminent finishing of the wrath of God. Now, if I was going to place this scene somewhere, you know, if I was the editor here, I would place this scene after the wrath of God gets finished. Not right before it officially begins its finish. But that's not where the Lord puts it. I mean, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when they finish this praise service is these angels are going to walk out of that temple with the bowls of the wrath of God that are the last. Literally, the Greek means with this, it is the last. And just start dumping those things out upon the creation. And what do you see before it? What you see before it is the confidence, the faith, and the hope of the people of God in the faithfulness of God to them. What you see is a people that are so hopeful, so confident, so absolutely certain in their faith, knowing what is just about to happen because it's just been announced in verse 1. Before we get to the praise service, what you get is, um, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. There's no doubt what's going on here. These people are so confirmed in the certainty of hope of their faith that even in a circumstance that is literally going to be the worst that has ever been or ever will be for the creation, they are wound up in one of the most rapturous and perfect praise services that has ever or perhaps will ever occur. Now, guys, that's the kind of faith that's the kind of certainty in the faithfulness of God. That's the kind of stuff that will get you to the one year anniversary. That's the kind of stuff that will get you through the I don't know what to say except for it feels like emptiness. That's the kind of stuff that will let an old woman sit up there in a hospital room just bust it up from one end to the other quite frankly, be more cheerful and thankful, even though she is a little down for herself, than most people are at their average day in the office. That's the stuff. That's faith in action. And don't think to yourself, and I know I'm, I'm late here, don't think to yourself that because this is a heavenly scene, that they have somehow been removed 
from any kind of concern about what might be or what isn't yet as though they're in some kind of, you know, like spiritual Prozac kind of mode where just kind of nothing matters. Because, man, you see these same people at the beginning of Revelation have great concern about how long it's going to be until the Lord does act. I mean, they're, they're, they're not in some kind of weird, spaced out, you know, this isn't some kind of ethereal kind of thing. These are just people that know their God. Because they're standing right before Him. And understand that even in the midst of the circumstance of wrath and judgment, which has never been before and never will be again, God is faithful and therefore it is good. And they act accordingly. An amazing thing to see. I could go on. We didn't even really get started. But we'll call it right there. Anthony, why don't you pray for us, man?